it's time for the IHSA Safety Podcast. Welcome to IHSA Safety Podcast. I'm Enzo Garitano. We continue our series about fall protection in construction. This series of podcasts features Brian Barron, Senior Manager of the Construction Health and Safety Program with the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development. Let's continue the conversation with Brian. Here's your host, Michelle Roberts. So Brian, how many Ontario construction workers died from a fall in 2020? So unfortunately, uh, eight construction workers died uh, from a fall in 2020. So it made up for about uh, 35% of all the fatalities that happened in the construction sector. And from a critical injury standpoint, uh, there was 176 or 67% um, of the critical injuries were as a result of a fall on a construction project. Brian, what's the best method of fall protection? We, we hear the term hierarchy of controls. Can you simplify that for us? Yeah, so, so really the best method of fall protection is preventing uh, workers from being able to access the fall hazard. So for example, guardrails actually physically prevent uh, you from uh, reaching the open edge. So you just can't fall. Um, next to that would be a travel restraint system. It also prevents you from reaching the edge, but it relies on the worker setting it up correctly. And most importantly, it relies on the worker setting the rope um, to the correct length so that they cannot uh, reach the edge. Then we get into fall arrest systems. Um, this doesn't stop you from going over the edge. It will allow you to go over the edge, but it will arrest your fall um, before you hit the ground. Um, now, obviously, you don't want to fall. Um, that's the the number one goal. So what we say is you want to prevent the fall uh, only when you cannot prevent that fall through something like a guardrail can you start to work your way through those other systems. So travel restraint and then fall arrest as sort of the last resort. So we know that training workers is a key component in fall prevention. Um, is it mandatory training and does it expire? Yes. Uh, working at Heights Training is mandatory on construction projects in Ontario, and it has to be delivered by an approved training uh, program provider. And it expires three years uh, after it was taken. Uh, to clarify that, Brian, it is mandatory training for those who may use a fall protection system. Now, however, it's important to note uh, that proper fall protection training also includes site-specific training and equipment-specific training. So the site-specific training deals specifically with the fall protection scenario at the particular job site that you're working at. So if you're working on a flat roof or on on a pitched roof, um, or you're working around floor openings, that site-specific training is going to take that into account. Similarly, with equipment-specific training, so the equipment that's selected uh, for the particular fall protection scenario, you have to be trained in each individual component's um, application to ensure that it's the correct piece of equipment for the job. So if any of these variables change, you will need new site-specific or equipment-specific training. Okay, so what is your advice on the best way to determine? So if you're thinking of the employers and constructors, what's the best advice to determine what site-specific training may be required on the project? So you have to identify all the fall-related hazards on the job site to start with. Um, To meet this requirement, the employer should ensure that the site supervisor conducts a hazard assessment or job safety analysis. Um, The job safety analysis and the hazard assessment will actually go through Um, really kind of what is entailed in the work. It's going to go through what the hazards are and then what it will allow that supervisors to do is really kind of review the results of that assessment and 
really kind of look at what the requirements for the fall protection work is. And then, then what they can do is they can develop a work plan to protect the workers in line um, with whatever the hazard assessment shows and whatever fall protection equipment was deemed to be most appropriate. Okay, so I think this would be a good time to remind the listeners that um, IHSA does have three key tools that are in our fall prevention resources. They're um, free to download, and they're great to assist the employer and supervisor with some of those key requirements that you mentioned, Brian, on how to determine, you know, what site-specific training may be required. So we do have a job safety analysis or hazard assessment template, and it shows the supervisor uh, the different steps to identify where the hazards um, exist and what fall protection should be put in place. And also, um, it allows that process for the supervisor to determine, you know, what is the best way to control this? Can it be eliminated? Um, And if not, what fall protection should be put in place? The um, other template we have is the fall protection work plan. And this is a step-by-step guide for controlling fall hazards on the job site. Again, it's intended to offer guidance and instruction for workers when they're using fall protection. It's designed to be easy to follow and help supervisors choose the best method of fall protection, given the circumstances, because we keep talking about site-specific and equipment-specific, and it is workplace-specific circumstances we need to factor in when we are doing the the planning um, for fall protection plans. And also, another key resource that could be referenced here is a uh, most recent update. We did send out a Working at Height site-specific training advisory bulletin um, to remind um, work all workplace parties on the importance of evaluating um, the specific hazards that they're being faced with and for the employer to take action in, de- in developing and delivering uh, site-specific training. I'm Michelle Roberts, and we're continuing our discussion with Senior Manager Brian Barron of the Construction Health and Safety Program with the Ministry of Labor, Training and Skills Development. So my next question, Brian, is are fall rescue procedures a legal requirement? Yes. Um, So before any worker uses a fall arrest system on a project, the the employer has to develop written procedures for rescuing uh, someone whose fall has been arrested. So that's where they've fallen over the edge and they're now supported by the lifeline uh, rope grab lanyard and the the, um, full body harness. Now, these rescue procedures should also be reviewed with the workers uh, because the workers are, are likely going to be the ones helping to affect the rescue. And they must be posted in a conspicuous place at the project, usually with the other emergency procedures for the project. Now, IHSA does have a template um, for the sample fall rescue procedures. Um, and the employers can customize it to meet their needs. Now, if workers use a fall arrest system, employers must develop these procedures for rescuing that suspended worker. Um, what we see a lot on sites is where people say, oh, we'll just grab a couple guys and pull them back up over the edge. That is not a good situation. Um, one, you're at really putting other workers at risk of falling. And number two, it's not as easy as people think it is to try and lift up that much weight up over uh, the edge of a building, not to mention if the worker has been injured on the way down. So let's say they're not able to use uh, their limbs quite the same way or um, they've they've passed out. So it's not that is not an appropriate uh, rescue procedure. You have to have something else in place. Um, now, the other thing that you can do is you can put up posters and warning signs around the work site um, and then also distribute stickers to workers to remind them about fall hazards on site that people are aware that that is happening. Thank you. 
Okay. So Brian, if you can, let's, let's touch on um, when do you need to have guardrails in place on construction sites? Yeah. So guardrails, and again, being you're, you're aiming for that elimination of the hazard, which guardrails does or do, um, the guardrails have to be in place uh, really on the open side of all work surfaces. In the end of it, there's, there's a couple different rules around it. So uh, one of them, and the main one that we would see, is if the work level is over eight feet or 2.4 meters in height. Um, so typically, when you take a look at your average residential building, uh, the second floor of the house would require guardrails around it. Uh, the same would go for any of the industrial, commercial, or institutional type buildings. Um, there's another one too, which is if you could fall four feet or 1.2 meters and the area is used uh, as a path for a wheelbarrow or similar equipment. So if you take a look at a construction project where there's a path where a lot of equipment, say a skid steer, um, a loader, something like that is is kind of using that path uh, as a regular path of travel throughout the, the project, there would be a requirement for a guardrail at the four foot level. So not just the eight foot level, but it would be reduced down to the four foot level. And then at any height, uh, where a worker could fall into operating machinery, into something like water or another liquid, or into a hazardous substance or object, um, or even through uh, an opening in the work surface. So you need guardrails in those locations as well. Uh, if you can't install guardrails, you do need to use some other form of fall protection that complies with the construction regulations. And please keep in mind with that, um, when you can't use guardrails, every worker has to be individually protected against that fall. So the goal really is to get guardrails in place as early as possible uh, in every situation. We often hear the term housekeeping and the importance of um, keeping clear sites. So can you touch on why that's important when it comes to fall protection? Yeah, so one of the major, so there's there's a couple of ways to look at this. Um, so one of them is housekeeping on just sort of a, a regular ground level. Uh, so just, just let's say the ground. So there's no specific fall hazard per se um, beyond sort of a slip and trip. Uh, what we see a lot in construction uh, is debris, uh, extra pieces of wood, potentially brick, that sort of stuff uh, that's sitting on the ground that, that is in the pathway for workers to get to and from uh, the locations that they're working. And what ends up happening is they can slip, they can trip, uh, they can twist an ankle. Uh, and what that results in is a lot of broken wrists, wrists, broken ankles, uh, that sort of thing. There can be head injuries, that sort of thing. Now, the other situation is where you're dealing with um, debris and garbage on an elevated level. Um, so let's say you're on the second, third, fourth floor of a building, something like that, uh, or maybe even in a stairwell uh, where there's a lot of debris, a lot of material uh, that workers trip, uh, slip, uh, or just really kind of create a situation where it's unstable footing around a significant fall hazard. Uh, you can imagine the fact that that's going to send the worker into potential danger with the fall hazard there. So it is really important to ensure that the site is kept clean uh, and that all material and debris is kept to sort of one location. So where possible, putting it into a garbage bin uh, or piling it into just one area until it can make it into a bin is very, very important. So continuing with um, the enforcement discussion, what are some of the typical fines issued for not using fall protection? Yeah, so one of the most 
typical um, fines that we would see is is known as a part one offense notice. Uh, so it's very similar to what you would get like a speeding a ticket or like a speeding ticket. Um, so the first one is is worker failing to work in compliance with uh, subsection 26.12, which is is not wearing fall protection. So they're not adequately protected by fall protection. And that carries a fine, a set fine of $350 plus court fees. Um, now the second part of this is there's also something called a part one offense notice. So an offense notice, or sorry, a part one summons. Um, that part one summons is, it carries a fine of up to $1,000 plus victim fine surcharge and uh, court fees as well. So that's an example where let's say a worker has been caught a couple of times not wearing fall protection. So the first time they were issued uh, an offense notice. Um, and then the second time, they get potentially a summons. Now, there is a third option as well, which is a part three uh, prosecution, which is something where you go to court. Uh, so similar to the part one summons, uh, but the part three is you're going, it's usually uh, in relation to serious uh, non-compliance situations where we've had multiple issues uh, with somebody or it's been the result or it's it's the result of a an injury a fatality some other event like that uh, and that could potentially carry a fine of up to a hundred thousand dollars plus um, or really and or uh, up to a year in jail uh, if found guilty of the offense now when we get into the supervisor it's a similar uh, set of circumstances. So there's there's really sort of three different options. So there's the part one offense notice. Um, now for a supervisor, not um, ensuring that a worker was adequately protected by fall protection, it carries a higher fine though for the part one offense notice of $550. Now for the part one summons, it's the same. It's, it's up to $1,000. Um, and then when we get into the part three uh, situation, it's the same sort of thing. So it's up to $100,000 and or a year in jail. Now, keep in mind that that $100,000 um, is, is rare. That is for kind of the worst of the worst type scenario. So routinely, we would see charges much lower than that. Now, the third option, uh, or the third party, I should say, uh, is an employer. So an employer failing to ensure a worker adequate, is adequately protected by fall protection, they could receive an offense notice um, for $650 plus court, or court fees. Um, but there's also uh, the part one summons option as well, although it's not used very often in, or very uh, often in an employer situation, um, but that could go up to $1,000 again. But for an employer now, uh, where they're a corporation, um, the fine amount for a part three prosecution, so that big prosecution in court, uh, can go up to $1.5 million. Um, so there's a significant jump that's there. And again, this is for the worst, that $1.5 million is for the worst of the worst um, scenarios. Um, but you can see how it escalates. Um, very quickly as you go up in severity. So there's a number of different um, fines that can be issued um, for not complying with the fall protection sections. Uh, but you can see really kind of, you know, why it's it's used as a deterrent. Those are, are some pretty big numbers. Uh, and it's a, it's a serious offense for us. So we know that there's often new or young workers on site, and often they may not know how to protect themselves. So what's your recommendation on what workers should do um, if they don't know how to protect themselves from a fall hazard when they're working on a construction site? 
Well, first, I'd like to, to highlight uh, the need for working at heights training again. So if you are presented with a fall hazard where, uh, let's say you are a new worker, uh, somebody's given you a harness, um, a lanyard, a rope grab, and a lifeline uh, to go and do some work, and you haven't received that training, you are not qualified to do that, and you cannot do that type of work. Um, now, if it's a situation where you're just unsure as to whether or not there's a fall hazard in place, you should really ask your supervisor. So you cannot face a fall hazard without protection. You just can't go up and kind of look over the edge of the building or anything like that. There should be a guardrail in place. If there isn't, you really need to exercise your rights. So ask your questions, get informed, um, and make sure that you're getting the training and the information regarding the hazards that you're exposed to. You can ask to look at that hazard assessment. You can ask to kind of walk through really what what it is that you need to ensure that you're protected um, from that hazard. And I would encourage you to do so. Okay, last question. Um, can you expand on what you think the motivation should be for workers to use fall protection? Yeah, so each person may have a different motivation to use fall protection. I mean, number one, legally, it's it's a requirement. Um, there's no real way around that. Uh, so provided it meets the requirements, you, you have to have uh, fall protection on. Um, now, some people are really only motivated to avoid the fines or penalties. Um, however, we also want people to consider what it would be like for their children, uh, their partner, uh, their parents, that sort of thing, if there was a life-altering uh, injury or if they died on the job. Um, these are real outcomes um, from this. So we want to prevent harm and traumatic injuries that can lead to life-altering disabilities. Um there are hundreds of good reasons to use fall protection. You have to find yours, um, but bottom line is, is it's legally required. This is something we see all the time. You are not immune, and I really can't emphasize that enough. Thanks for listening to this episode. In support of preventing falls from heights on construction projects, we recommend you take action, deliver a safety talk, have a meaningful conversation with your workers about the hazards relating to working at heights, but most importantly, about safety tips, practices, and expectations to ensure they get home safe to their loved ones each and every day. For more on this topic, visit ihsasafetypodcast.ca for your link to fall prevention tools and resources. I'm Enzo Garitano, and thanks again to our host, Michelle Roberts, and special guest, Brian Barron, Senior Manager with the Construction Health and Safety Program of the Ministry of Labour, Training, and Skills Development. Thanks for listening. The IHSA Safety Podcast. For more episodes, tips, and all things safety, go to ihsasafetypodcast.ca. Thanks for listening. Each year, about 5,000 IHSA Supervisor Logbooks are ordered for supervisors across Ontario. Why is the logbook so popular? Because it was developed by the industry for the industry. That's what makes it unique. IHSA thanks the members of the Labour Management Network and Advisory Councils who contributed their knowledge, experience and time to the preparation of this Supervisor Logbook. Contact IHSA at 1-800-263-5024. That's 1-800-263-5024. Or visit ihsa.ca. That's ihsa.ca.